Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We will pick up where we left off two weeks ago. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to warn you, we're coming to the end of our series on Peter, on 1 Peter. We will, after today, have three more sermons on this, and then we will get ready for his uh, promised coming in December, and we'll go through some Advent sermons at that time. But we still have some work to do here. The Lord still has some things to say to us as we wrap up Peter's letter. And last Sunday, or two Sundays ago rather, we looked at verses 13 through 17. And I just want to summarize those for you real quickly to get you back into the frame of mind and to prepare you and me to hear what Peter then is inspired to say next. In, in 1 Peter three thirteen. We are told that no one, listen to this, no one can harm you if you are zealous for what is good. And we're urged to do good without fear of retribution from mankind because we cannot be harmed from an eternal standpoint, though we may be harmed in this life. We can't be harmed for doing good and being zealous for what is good long term. We were told that suffering for righteousness sake ultimately brings to us blessings. And that blessing is that our relationship with Jesus Christ is strengthened. And the blessing is that our testimony to those that watch us endure suffering is used by God to bring others into the kingdom. And ultimately, we will be blessed because there is a promised deliverance. And it's called eternity with Christ and God in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. We are then told not to live fearful or troubled, but we are to set Christ apart in our hearts as holy, and we are to dwell on Him. And we are to think much of Christ even in our times of suffering. And He'll tell us why in a minute we're to do that, but that's what we have been instructed by Peter to this point to do. And then he says this key phrase, this evangelistic phrase. We are always to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for why we have such hope in our hearts. We're ready to be evangelists at any moment. And even in the moment of being persecuted and enduring strife in this world, when someone says, why is it that through all of this, you're still hopeful? We have an opportunity to share the gospel. We're hopeful because Christ is our King of kings and Lord of lords. And when we make this defense... We're to do so gently and respectfully, Peter says. And he says there's a purpose behind that. And it's so that those who revile us will be put to shame the day that Jesus comes back again. They will say, whoa, I made a tremendous mistake in persecuting these people for this Christ because he is real. And the conclusion is, Peter says right there in verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And sometimes it's God's will that we be persecuted for doing good. And it's better that we have that than we are persecuted for doing evil. Now I want you to read with me verses 18 through 22. With that said, Peter starts this next phrase with the word for. You could also put the word because in there. Okay, That might help you link the previous passage to what we're going to look at today. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. 
because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Father, we are here this morning to hear from you. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand these intensely important verses. May we worship you. May I worship you as I preach. And may these that you have brought here worship you through listening and application to their own lives. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's look at verse 18 to begin with. There's three things that I want to do with this passage this morning. First is I want to see that we have a Christ who suffered. We suffer in this world, yes, but Peter takes us and and tells us to set our eyes on this suffering Christ and let's observe how he suffered. Then secondly, he's going to show us the victory of Christ in his suffering. He was victorious over those who persecuted him. And then thirdly, we're going to see and we're going to end on the supremacy of Christ. That's what this verse, these, these few verses show us. The suffering of Christ, the victory of Christ, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ right now and forevermore. So first, let's just break down this suffering that Christ has endured. And it's all found in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is a massive verse in our Christian Bible. In fact, this is one of those verses that compactly presents to us the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a verse that Christians need to memorize. This is a verse that Christians need to use to evangelize. And it's short and it's sweet, but it's profound in what meaning it holds. And I give you four truths that we unpack out of this one verse in verse 18. As I do this, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to look in to the Christian faith. And I want you to listen closely because this is what defines us. You want to know what it means to be a Christian? It's to believe and embrace every word in verse 18 of 1 Peter 3. And so here's four things that we get from this verse. Number one, we see here that Christ suffered once for sins. Christ suffered suffered once for sins. Now, here's some history of sin in the world and in mankind. Man sinned in the Garden of Eden. And through that sin came death because God proclaimed a death penalty on humankind. He said, if you don't obey me and you eat of this one tree that I've told you not to, you will surely die. I've met with two young men in the last couple of weeks who have been able to say that to me, looking me straight in the eye. What happens when you sin? You will surely die is what God said. That's true for all of us. And so God, because of that, instilled into the the teachings, into the ways of His people Israel, this sacrificial system. And I mean to tell you, through centuries and centuries and centuries, people sacrificed animals 
as a symbolic substitute for their sins. And through this sacrifice and the offering of blood to God, he forgave them of their sins. And this happened throughout all the Old Testament. And there's no telling how many millions upon millions of animals were sacrificed to provide a remedy to the sins in people's lives. In fact, at the Passover alone, it's estimated some 750,000 sheep were slaughtered at Passover every year, generation after generation after generation. But this verse has a very key phrase, a wonderful phrase. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins. And what that means in our Christian faith is that Jesus Christ, he was the lamb who takes away the sins of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, he is the once and for all sacrifice for all sins. And so from that point forward, the animal sacrifice ceased because Jesus Christ was the once and for all sacrifice for sins. And so we have verses like this found in Hebrews 10. Just jot this down in your notes because Peter and the writer of Hebrews obviously are syncing up here. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that's his work on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we believe that Jesus Christ was the once and for all final sacrifice for sins. And his blood was shed on that cross so that we might have forgiveness for our sins. And that forgiveness comes to us when we profess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and when we believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead. So Christ suffered once for sins, and so the message for us is, as we endure suffering in this world, let's cast our eyes on Christ who did it once and for all, for all the sins in all of history, and let's look and see that He was victorious in that suffering, and He is supreme to this day and forevermore. That's where we're going. Now, while we suffer in this world, and we do, we're persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ. We saw two weeks ago persecution going on with some pastors in Houston. It's coming our way. We're not exempt from this. In fact, this should be what we expect. This will become normal for us. And just a quick aside, let me tell you, we live in America. And America is, has been to this point very, very spared from persecution for our faith in Jesus Christ. We're a Christian nation, right? But we are watching day by day, week by week, persecution creeping in to our lives for our profession of faith in Jesus Christ in this Bible that comes from God Himself. It's happening on the marriage front. And every uh, there are all kinds of issues. And people are starting to take notice of the Christian beliefs. And they are coming under attack. And what's been going on here in this, this experiment called America, we have lived in a bubble for two or three centuries almost, dating back to the colonies in the Revolutionary War. We have lived in a bubble 
We have been a Christian nation. We have been happy with ourselves. While the rest of the world, for all of history, has been severely, severely persecuted for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We have been, as America, an exception to the norm. And we are becoming more and more normal. And I think it's my calling to prepare us for that normal that's been going on in the world for centuries, for millennium. I'm called to prepare us for that day when we are normal with the rest of the world. That's why God gave us the book, First Peter, and that's why we're preaching through it. We need to get ready for what the rest of the world has endured for ages upon ages. And Houston two weeks ago is evidence. It's getting ever closer, ever closer to us. And so here's some hope because we are to suffer, but Hebrews 12, 3 through 4 tells us that we have not suffered and will not suffer to the extent that Jesus Christ did. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. You will not be asked to die for the sins of other people. Jesus Christ once and for all did that. Now you might shed some blood over your faith in Jesus Christ. But you will be following after the one who did it once and for all. And you will see in a moment that he was victorious and he reigns supremely to this day. And should you come even to that point, you will be victorious in him as well. And you will sit on the front row watching him reign for all of eternity. So that's number one. Christ suffered once for the sins of the whole world. Secondly, Christ's death was substitutionary. It's a big word. But I want everyone in this room to know this word, substitution. I think it's the greatest word in Christianity. And here's what it means. Peter defines it for us. He says, he suffered once for sins, and here it comes, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ is the righteous, never committed a sin once. You and I are the unrighteous. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus Christ, the righteous, died once for you and me, the unrighteous. He substituted for us on the cross. He died the death that God said would certainly come if you disobey my commands. Because Jesus never disobeyed God, yet he died. If we believe in him on that cross as a substitute for us, he's paid the death penalty for us. And that's what this verse says, the righteous for the unrighteous. This just makes you think of 2 Corinthians 5.21. That verse ought to be firing off in your brain if you know that verse. And here's how it goes. For our sake, He, being God, made Him, being Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ knew no sin. We did. And He made Him to become that sin in our place so that we might be declared by God righteous before His presence. That's the good news of the gospel. And it comes with this word substitution. When Jesus said on that cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are words that should have been coming out of our mouths. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, we will never utter that to God. We will never say those words to God. 
In fact, we'll say, as I said a couple of weeks ago, my God, my God, can it be that he died for me? That's what we say now if we believe and trust in Jesus Christ. So, number two, Christ's death was substitutionary. The righteous for the unrighteous. Number three, Christ did this for a purpose. And it says that he might bring us to God. Christ's death, his substitution on the cross for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, had one purpose in mind. And that is that you and I, through believing in his substitution for us, could be ushered in and be right and declared pure and just before God, even though we don't deserve it. And so we have verses like this in Matthew 27, when Jesus died on the cross, it says he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain that was in the temple divided the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. And only one man could go through that curtain. It was the high priest. And he had to be prayed up and repented up and purified. And only then could he go in there once a year. But that curtain got ripped and it was God saying, you have access to me through Jesus Christ who substituted on the cross for you. Forget this curtain, come to me and I will give you life and forgiveness and I will wash you pure and you will be my people and I will be your God. So the veil was ripped, rendered useless because God said wide open, every one of you individually through Christ, you come to me now. That was the purpose that Christ, the righteous, died for us, the unrighteous, to bring us into the very presence of God. We no longer need a priest to do that for us. And here's number four. Christ did this. Christ did this by being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Yes, Christ died on that cross, but Christ was made alive In the spirit, he defeated sin and death once and for all. And everyone who believes in him will be benefactors, will be partners with him in defeating sin and death and will have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And Acts 2.24 is just a strong verse that, that substantiates this. Luke writes, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was impossible for death to hold the righteous Christ because he was righteous. Death comes from sin. Jesus never sinned. Therefore, he overcame death because he's righteous. And here's the invitation from the Bible. If you believe in this righteous one that died for you, you can be raised from the dead as well and have eternal life in the presence of Christ. Before the throne of grace. That invitation is out there for every last one of us. And everyone that you're going to encounter in town this week. If they believe in this righteous for the unrighteous. They can be made in direct contact with God himself. So that is the gospel, verse 18. That is the core of Christianity. But now let's go to my second point this morning. And that is that Christ was victorious. And we see that he was dead in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And let's watch Christ in victory now. Verse 19. It says this. In which, this is his life now in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. 
I've got to tell you, there are some passages in the Bible that you come up to and you, you, you just stop and you say, what in the world are we to do with that? And this is one of those. Uh, this, this might be the most difficult passage in all the Bible to fully understand what it is Peter is trying to communicate to us. There are many views on this. There's four that I think are worthy of comment on. But before I do that, I, I read deep as I prepare to preach. And I went and read Martin Luther on this passage. Because what does a guy in the 1500s say about this? I li- I'd like to see what's been said over the ages. Here's what I found in Martin Luther's writings about this phrase. Okay, He says, a wonderful text this is. And a more obscure passage perhaps in- than any other in the New Testament. So that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Luther, come on, man, I need more help than this. So I left Martin Luther saying, okay, I'm on my own. But I'm not because there's many other people that have commented on this passage. And let me just give you a flavor. We're not going to leave here with an answer. I'm going to tell you where I come down sometimes. But we've got to be careful and, and, and comfortable sometimes that there's passages that we just really don't know how to say, bang, there it is. And thankfully, this is not a verse that swings salvation. For all of eternity. There's one view developed by St. Augustine back in the third and fourth century or so, and he believes that this, this proclaiming to spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey God, he believes that that is Christ being preached by Noah to those that watch Noah building his ark. And so Christ was proclaimed because the ark is representative of Christ. We're going to look at that very closely here in a moment. And so he was preached in the Old Testament by the prophet Noah. That's, that's a, in, a, in a microcosm what he thinks. There are others who believe that this is Christ preaching to the Old Testament saints who died and were liberated when Christ was between his death and his resurrection. There's no other verse that substantiates that. It implies that Jesus might have gone into hell. It, it even implies that there might be a place called purgatory, which is not biblical. But there's those that believe that. There's a third view that says Christ absolutely descended into hell. And there he preached to those in Noah's day and saved them and carried them out of hell, saying that basically people had a second chance in hell to get saved. I I don't believe that's a faithful rendering of this passage. In fact, if you know the, the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed speaks to this, and it has a phrase that says he descended into hell. They They got that from this, and I love the Apostles' Creed. I'm not sure that I can agree with this. He descended into hell. It does not change Christianity. And it is a debatable topic. And okay. But I don't think that we can substantiate that Jesus the righteous went into hell. After he died. And then he rose on the third day. Okay. Because today he said to the prisoner, the thief on the cross. You will be with me in paradise. Not with me anywhere else. So. And then here's a fourth view takes a lot more unpacking, but it is basically the belief that there were evil angels. If you look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, the Nephilim came and they intermarried with human women and had some offspring. And these Nephilim and their offspring were what ushered in a perversity in the world that caused God to flood the world. And so Christ went and preached to those Nephilim. Okay, that's it in a nutshell. I'm not going to go beyond that because it's not critical this morning. If you want to talk about those four, let's have some coffee this week. I'll, I'll sit down with you and talk through and through on any one of these four. 
I come down on one day I'm on the first one with St. Augustine and the last one in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. I'm, I toggle between those two. And then I say, Lord, one day you'll reveal it. But here's the most important point. We, we need to understand the most important thing is, and that is, what did Christ go and proclaim to whoever these prisoners were and wherever they were? That's the point. And the point is, he went and proclaimed victory. He was resurrected from the dead. He went to those, and if it was figuratively going to those in the Old Testament day, or if it was literally going to those somewhere, somehow, he's proclaiming, I have overcome sin and death. I rose from the dead. I conquered, and I am victorious. Follow me. That's what he's proclaiming. And so we need to focus on that and see that he is a victorious Savior, victorious over sin and death through his resurrection. Now, watch this. Let's move on. Peter takes us now to a very familiar Old Testament passage. Thank you, Colton, for reading this. And it is a tragedy. I loved your prayer. It was a horrific event. It's not something that we just teach our kids to draw an ark and some giraffes with smiles on their, on their faces as the ark's going through the water. No, this is the most horrifying story in the Old Testament. I think the only story that is more horrific is the cross of Christ. But this is a, a dangerous God that we're observing here in Genesis chapter 7. He is dangerous against sin. And so we read this account that God flooded the world because he was done with it. And he preserved just a very few. So let's read what Peter says about it. He says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Peter takes us to this very familiar Old Testament passage and applies it in a way that may be unfamiliar to you. And I want you to clearly understand what Peter is doing as he links baptism to Noah in the flood. There are several things that we need to look at here. There's several perspectives that we've got to soak in before we move on. And I've got three specifically. Number one, as we look at the story of Noah and the ark, we need to look at the fact that there were many in one camp and few in another camp. This is something that we need to stop and pause and go, hmm, what about the many and what about the few? On the many, in that flood account, a vast, a, an overwhelming majority of humanity was slain on that day. Uh, the, a majority of the world's population at that time, we don't know how many there were, but a vast majority, 99.9999% of humanity was devoured and killed by the floodwaters that God sent. And yet on this side we have the few because he says there were eight. That's Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. That's eight human beings on one day in history that survived the wrath of God against sin. The Bible tells us that the world had run so amuck in sin that he could not tolerate mankind anymore and he basically took the one righteous man Noah and his family and he preserved them so that he could start over 
We can all trace our family tree through Noah. Every one of us in this room. And then it goes to Adam and Eve. And this brings to mind a very familiar passage that Jesus proclaimed in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter by it. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Do you see that verse in the flood account? Many went through the wide gate. Living perversity through and through. And very few went through the narrow gate, the ark of God. And they found life, but those that went through the wide gate found death and destruction. That is true this day. We live in a world that is running rampantly for the wide gate that's so easy to pass through. We're running with people who are going down a wide path that's not narrow. It doesn't take struggles to navigate. And we are called to be exiles in this world and to go through this narrow gate on this hard way. And the reward is, at the end of it, there's life. There's life. And so the flood account teaches us what Jesus proclaimed. We must always be a people that choose the narrow gate. And the narrow gate is an ark. And we'll see in a moment that the ark is Jesus Christ. Second, we saw many and we few. We saw few. Now we see the judgment of God versus the salvation of God. The water in the flood account represents God's judgment and wrath against sin. And we worship a God who hates sin. He is dangerous towards sin and sinners. He has no room in His existence for sin. He is not the author of any kind of sin. He does not preserve sin. He devours sin. He judges sin. And so we see here a swift and extreme wrathful judgment of God against sin. And yet, we see salvation from God as well because He does want to preserve the sinner. And Noah was a sinner. And he does want to deliver his people who are repentant and believe in him and pursue him. He wants to deliver them through the judgment and wrath that he has for sin. And so he provided an ark. And the ark represents God's mercy and grace towards those that are his people. Just listen to what happened here. Genesis seven twenty two. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. That's God's stance towards sin. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Total annihilation. Blotted out. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Wrath and justice, grace and mercy. God demonstrated both of those traits in this account. The wrath and mercy went against the many. The grace and the wrath and judgment went against the many. The grace and mercy went to the few. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, 
And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who find it. So we see the judgment of God versus the salvation of God. And then thirdly, we see the patience of God, because Peter says he was patient. We see the patience of God versus his sudden, out-of-nowhere wrath. Look at this. Look at Genesis 7. Just listen to this, how, how, how God does this in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day... All the fountains of the great deep burst forth suddenly out of nowhere. And the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. I think it's the first time it ever rained in the history of history. And it rained up from the ground and down from the heavens. Water clapped on the earth and on humanity and on animals. And Peter says that God was patient before he sent this bi-directional water force. He was patient. What was he patient with? He was patient with Noah, who was building an ark out of gopher wood. A massive structure that was to carry a massive and precious cargo. Life. And so God patiently waited until that... That vessel was complete before he clapped judgment on the earth. This is a picture of our God. He then was patient. And I'm going to tell you that he now is patient. He now is patient like this. We're promised, as as Christians who believe in the Bible, we're promised of a day when Jesus Christ is coming again. And God in this moment is being very patient with the world. Because when Christ comes again, He's going to come on a white horse, not a donkey. And He's going to come with a robe dipped in blood. He's not going to be a little infant in a manger. And He's going to have a sword, which is the Word of God coming out of His mouth. And He's going to use this sword to strike His enemies, it says in, in Revelation 19. And this robe that's dipped in blood, that's the blood of His enemies his enemies and so there's going to be a day when god judges the world once and for all but on that day when jesus comes again first thessalonians tells us that those who have died before us are going to be resurrected and meet with jesus and then we if we're still alive at that time we will meet together with him and we will be spared the flood of christ's in his wrath and we will go with him through the judgment of God, to spend eternity with Him, while the rest of God's enemies will be devoured by the judgment of Christ. So this morning you sit here, and we live in a time of great patience, where God again is being patient. He preached long ago through Noah in the building of this ark. Noah was preaching a sermon as he built that ark. And I'm preaching to you here this morning. The Bible preaches to you when you read it. Emily, the Bible preached to you, Genesis, uh, Jeremiah 29, 13, and you responded. God was patient with you. He's doing that with you and me as well. We're in a time, a season of great patience on the part of God. But there is a day when His patience will end and He will act for all of eternity. Matthew 24, 36 I want you to just listen to this. Let this rain down on you. Jesus says, But concerning 
the day and hour. No one knows it. Not even the angels have heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus Himself links His second coming to Noah. This is biblical preaching here. This isn't my tricks with the Bible. This is Jesus Himself linking His second coming with Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So there's another flood coming. There's another time where God will judge sin once and for all. There's another ark that will be used to carry God's people safely through the judgment waters. And His name is Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Him? Do you reside in Him? Will you be carried safely through when God acts again once and for all? So let's tie this together now with this baptism that we witnessed this morning. Emily proclaimed an ancient, ancient story to you today. (laughs) Because see, Peter says our baptism points back to God's judgment on the world and the deliverance of people safely through floodwaters. And so we stand in water and we get totally submersed and we come out. And yes, that depicts Christ and his death, his burial and his resurrection. And Emily said to you, like many of us have said, I identify with Christ in his death, burial and resurrection. I am safe now from the judgment waters of God. That's what she said to you this morning. That's what she said to God. She said, God, you have delivered me through your son. And so what God did with Noah long ago pointed forward to today and what Emily did in this baptistry. And what she did this morning pointed backwards to what God did in Genesis chapter 7. And our calling as people of God is to tell this story of God's judgment against sin and deliverance through Christ. For you see, Jesus Christ is the ark of God. When we go into Christ, we are delivered safely through the waters. And while she went underwater and came up, she was in Christ who overcame death and resurrected on that third day. And he endured the wrath of God that was meant for her. Emily understands that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is Jesus experiencing the full wrath of God. To be forsaken by God is to taste His wrath. And He did that in her place, in my place, and perhaps your place. And so that's the proclamation that she made. She was delivered by the ark that is Jesus Christ through the waters of judgment that God put down on the earth. God was patient with her. She told me that in her testimony. We met last week and several weeks, and she shudders. I I think it's safe to say she shudders at the fact that God was patient with her for all those years until she came to profess Christ as Lord. How about you? Do you embrace the truth that God is patiently calling those that He will to come to Him?
He's calling you. I think He's calling everyone in this room to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. And by not sending Christ yet, and we're waiting, He says that we don't know that hour. It's going to be spontaneous. In this season, He's patiently waiting for you to come to Him and say, I need to be delivered from your wrath against sin because I have committed sin. Will you save me in your Son, Jesus Christ? Peter says about this baptism, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. We've got to be careful with that phrase because Emily did not get saved right there this morning before your very eyes. That, that did not happen right there. She's saying she was saved two summers ago when she encountered God in His Word in Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. And what she did this morning was she proclaimed the reality that that happened to her. And so Peter says here, yes, baptism saves, but he says this. He says, it's not, it's not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not just a bath. Or we're washing sin off of us, though that might be true. It is symbolic of being washed. No, he's saying it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is something that happens spiritually, inwardly, inside of a person, not externally in a baptistry. And Emily will tell you that she was baptized two summers ago when she met on a swing at her parents' house with the Bible in her lap. That's where she was baptized. She came this morning to say, I want you to know that happened to me. I've been purified by God. I've been delivered from His wrath. And so that's what Peter means by saying this baptism now saves you. Now here's how we'll finish. And we'll go quick on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Verse 22 says this. It says, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Jesus Christ is supreme. He's at the right hand of God the Father, and we know from the Bible that this is a place of power and a place that is highly esteemed. Psalm 98.1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. Jesus Christ is God's salvation for us, and He sits at God's right hand, and He is that salvation. His enemies, it also says, Peter says, His angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Christ's enemies today are a footstool. They are subjected to Him. Jesus says in the Great Commission right before it, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that is present tense right before he ascends to God the Father and sits at that right hand spot. All authority has been given to Christ. Christ is supreme to this point. And the point is in all of this context of suffering, Christ suffered. Christ was victorious. Christ reigns supremely. So that when you are persecuted for your faith in Christ, you will be with him in victory. And you will be with Him in supremacy as He reigns and rules forever and ever. Do you believe in this Christ? This ark? This method that God has provided you? This means, this vessel that God has provided you to be delivered through His wrath against your 
sin. It's the only way that you can be made right with God. You can't work your way to be right with God. You can't just get wet in a baptistry to be right with God. You must profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You must believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And the promise is, you will be saved. So I ask you now, would you stand with me and would you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Here's how we're going to close the sermon. Romans chapter 8 is just all over this topic. And I want us to read this together, standing. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. We'll go to the end of the chapter. Tyler, you could make your way forward because I'm going to pray at the end of this reading. And then we'll continue to to worship and wrap up. This is a verse that, boy, I wish you would memorize. (laughs) These, These verses are key in our Christian walk in this world. Here we go. Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you're a believer here this morning, you have been delivered from the wrath of God through the ark of Christ. And this verse is true for you. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ right now, the wrath of God is bearing down on you one day. When Jesus comes again, it will be a tremendously horrific day for you. But He's being patient. And you have time to repent and claim this Christ so that you can never be separated from Him for all time and forevermore. So what's keeping you from doing this? I'd love to talk with you about salvation in Christ. We could do that this morning. You can call me this week. There's others that would love to talk with you about this ark that is Jesus Christ. Would you come and discover for the first time salvation that's found in Him? Let me pray. Father, we have opened Your truth. You have spoken from Your Word. Would You move us now, every one of us, saved and unsaved, to respond to You in worship. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here that has not been delivered from their sins, that they would be struck with this reality this morning and that they would come to You and profess that Jesus Christ is the only way that they can be made right with You. Father, would You put them in My presence or the presence of others that can unpack this truth for them? And would You lead them to salvation once and for all? Father, for those of us that do believe this, would you cause us 
to worship you more sincerely and more authentically as a result of repeating and rehashing this most incredible truth about us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.